suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Well, hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Welcome to Psycho Chicago number one. We continue where we left off in Murder Just a Shot Away, part six, detailing of the mutilated chromosomes of the DNA that run through the city of Chicago, a living, breathing organism, now sustained only by life support. That and the amazing skills of hospital ER staffs throughout the city whom perform miracles on a daily basis. I mean, literally. And and as I speak these words, more than 60-some people have been shot in Chicago in the past 10 days, 38 this past weekend, keeping those ER medical workers plenty busy. And, and, and these figures do not include all the people, in, including women, who have been savagely set upon and viciously beaten by packs of black youths whom, in a sign of things to come and the existence of a bleak house existence so detailed by Charles Dickens in the 19th century, you know, London to come, the mayor of Mayor-elect of Chicago, Brandon Johnson, has suggested that nobody should condemn nor demonize these youths for their violent crimes because they are frustrated. Oh, boy. Indeed, so we are. You know, as we, you know, would be, as would be most civilized people who have witnessed Again, the shocking anarchy and mad random violence that is sucking the last of the vitality out of, you know, an already diseased city that is Chicago at the moment. You know, this past weekend's moment has been referred to rather nonchalantly as a teen takeover of Chicago's loop. You know, perhaps it was just that, a teen takeover. But if so, thank your, thank your lucky stars that you were not there to be murdered, beaten, unconscious, robbed while unconscious, victimized, traumatized, and he even had your shoes been stolen off your feet by a crazed school of piranhas in the midst of a maddened, ferocious feeding frenzy. You know, a pack of fierce feeding hyenas come to mind. Just another frenzied night of wilding in the city of Chicago. And in our most recent episode, we began to review Chicago's elongated, extended, checkered past history of nastiness, violence, and general lawlessness, which we are able, unfortunately, to trace back roots back to the 19th century. 
And we ended our last session by covering the violent labor disputes that roiled for years um, between members of the ARU union and the Pullman Railroad Company and resulted in a massive involvement of the Chicago Police Department and the U.S. Army in those altercations. And before the violence had subsided, 13 people were dead in the streets, hundreds injured, and uh, hundreds arrested, and damages exceeded $80 million, a lot of money, a fortune in the 1890s. And so, and so it is we carry on with news from this tragic, violent city. On, on New Year's Eve 1903, the newly built crown jewel of movie theaters, you know, reputedly christened as an absolutely fireproof gem, the Iroquois Theater burnt to the ground, killing 602 people that were trapped inside. It still remains to this day the deadliest single building fire in U.S. history. And no sooner had the massive and violent labor relations confrontations in the city of Chicago finally settled down to a, you know sort of a mild simmering boil then in 1906 Upton Sinclair released you know published his shocking novel The Jungle that revealed the absolutely hideous atrocious nature of the conditions that existed in in in, in, in shocking detail the nature of what was going on on a daily basis in Chicago's nasty stockyards and dirty, bloody slaughterhouses, abattoirs of, of death, of sickening dimension. You know, a committed Marxian um, socialist himself, Upton Sinclair wrote his novel, The Jungle, to awaken sympathy for the plight of the unfortunate workers whom desperate for employment, had few options but to go to work in Chicago slaughterhouses. It was big business in those days. And Sinclair had portrayed the life of immigrant workers and their families whom were condemned to work long hours in horrendous, unimaginable, almost indescribable circumstances under horrific working conditions. It was a disaster. And, and, what he revealed was not a pretty picture. Most readers were, were absolutely stunned by the revelations that Sinclair had described in ghastly, revolting detail. And Sinclair's greatest societal impact, however, arose out of his awful but accurate depictions, graphic and nauseating, um, of the conditions and practices that prevailed in the stockyards and horrific slaughtering houses of the city. It was just sickening stuff. But more than that, it was under these awful, rancid conditions, uh, American food supply was being obtained and prepared for distribution around the country. And once the horrors were revealed to the nation and its politicians, the situations in these, in these facilities just could no longer be ignored, no longer tolerated. Things had to change and change quickly and dramatically. And Chicago's business executives, obviously suffering from severe deficiencies, in, in morality and decency, and they were not above maintaining the obscenity that were their business operations and their livelihoods. And they wouldn't or, or couldn't be encouraged 
to improve the working environment or the sanitary conditions that prevailed in their businesses. Increased profits were their only drivers. And such was the depth of their lack of empathy for animals or man that they needed to be dragged into producing a safer and better working environment for the workers and for, for more sanitary conditions in the slaughterhouses. You know, and it was only done through legislation that would force them force them to do so. And in doing so, they behave more like human beings than pigs. It was pathetic, pitiful, and terrible on the part of these business executives, but it was all true. It was just awful. You know, and Sinclair had gotten the picture and he'd shared it with a disbelieving world. Chicago, even then, was a pure hellhole. And Sinclair's jungle, the jungle, ratcheted up by an order of magnitude the already increasing, growing pressure on politicians to take action to clean up the meatpacking industry, to end what was going on in Chicago, sanitize the slaughterhouses nationwide. Legislation in the form of the Pure Drug Act, despite the opposition of Chicago and, and industry uh, leaders, made its way through Washington's congressional you know, meeting rooms and halls, and, and it passed through Congress rather quickly. And Chicago was at the center of this business, and it had finally been coerced to emerge from the ooze, you know, and it found its way out of the slime from under the atrocious conditions that prevailed in one of Chicago's foremost primary industries. And as the city of Chicago was forced to emerge from the shameful shadows of, of the slime that was the slatter, slaughterhouse embarrassments, it surfaced from that sloth only to then find itself at the epicenter, it figures, of the worst of the violence that broke out during the scores of race riots and civil disturbances that raged all across the country during the Red Summer of 1990. The Red Summer was the name coined to characterize the racial and labor uh, nature underlying the violent conflicts between black and white Americans that broke out on Chicago's South Side on July 27th, and which didn't end and weren't finally stamped out these riots until August 3rd, 1919. And during the brutality that reigned during the week-long riots, 38 people were dead, 23 black, 15 white, 537 people were injured, and, and more than 2,000 people were left homeless. You know, Chicago, this self-acclaimed, um, self-proclaimed city of big shoulders, had reconfirmed its well-deserved reputation for, for filth, and violence, traits and trends it had long been equated with, and from which the city appeared unable to escape, to escape its past. And that reputation would, would not be tarnished. In fact, it would only be burnished when, less than five months later, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified in January, January 1920. Alcohol sales were now banned by the U.S. Constitution. The country was to be dry, just like that. Just like that. No drinking. When you have the morals police operating at full throat, well, 
things go wrong. Well, very, very wrong and very, very quickly. And if they're going to go wrong, Chicago might be the place you might guess would be the place that it would go very wrong very quickly. And in that case, you'd be right. And they did. In that, in that city of big shoulders, that big shoulders kind of way, within just a few years, Chicago would be making national and international headlines for its incredible levels of violence as the city found itself once again at the very center of criminal activity, enterprises, and scandal. Mobsters, you know, not gun-shy. And not surprisingly because it was was Chicago, they quickly and acutely scoped out the enormous profit uh, opportunity that could be captured by controlling the bootlegging operations out of Chicago during Prohibition. Profitable returns, so lucrative, paydays so huge, you know, asocial misfits not opposed to killing one another, if that's what it took, and that's what it did take, They would gain advantage in and take control of the booze business and they fought it out violently and publicly on the mean streets of Chicago. Prohibition was one failed experiment gone awry. Of that, there is no doubt. Continuous street battles over turf and distribution rights and immense profits do illegal alcohol sales bloodied an already bludgeoned city. This was the 1920s example of unintended consequences when the failed social experiment that was prohibition gave rise to illegal booze running, bootlegging, which migrated into gambling rackets and control of the prostitution business and then consolidated into and became a vast conglomerate of criminal enterprise that outwitted, outmanned, and outgunned the Chicago Police Department, the Bureau of Investigation. That was the FBI's predecessor organization of which J. Edgar Hoover took control in 1924. Hoover, you know, I should point out that Hoover remained in control as head of the FBI until 1972. A strange man with some strange peccadillos, a man who knew so much about people's secret lives, it worried even tricky-dicky Richard Nixon. You know, caught on his own White House tape one day, record, on his own recording device, Nixon was worried. Who knew what Hoover knew? Hoover was a man who would have been quite successful as a member of the Stasi had only he been born in East Germany. In any event, on the streets of Chicago, mobsters fought it out. Infamous crime titans, you know, legends were born. Mob bosses included the notorious Al Scarface Capone, Johnny Torrio, Machine Gun Jack McGurn, and Bugsy Moran, among others that loomed large in the annals of Chicago's violent criminal history. Money from um, legal alcohol businesses now had been redirected, you know, rerouted from legal, legitimate businesses to mobsters, outright immoral, unethical, misfit criminals who are now enriched beyond even their most you know, wild of dreams. Prohibition had in reality turned tens of millions of ordinary law-abiding American citizens into technical criminals while rewarding total losers who were out and out dangerous bad guys. 
Prohibition then equates, in part, to the later Saudi and Irani, even Afghan morals police, whom today actively search and seize the streets to hunt down those seen in some way to, to be offending Allah. Absolute craziness prevailed. You know, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which may have had the best of intentions when it lobbied so intently to ban alcohol sales to keep their men in line. But, but banning booze completely backfired on the nation. It really did. The mob was born, and there were, was brought into being a dangerous, metastasizing cancer. And these mobsters, can, they possess four things. Lots of money, lots of guns, lots of power, and no conscience. This is a dangerous admixture. Shockingly, violence skyrocketed. You know, history records um, the rise of the likes of Joseph Kennedy on the East Coast, whom, whom was made incredibly rich during the days of Prohibition. And, and look at all the good that has flowed the nation's way as a result of Joseph Kennedy. Only after Chicago, of course, the nation and the world, really, only the, when, when they were stunned by the bloody Chicago mass murder spree, known, known, to, uh, known to history as the St. Valentine's Day da- disaster took place, the most amazing crime in Chicago's amazing criminal history. Only then did the federal government, the U.S. federal government under President Herbert Hoover decide enough was enough. The feds just had to get involved as Chicago was way, way too violent, way, way too out of control. And the city's politicians were unprepared, unable, or unwilling, or on mobster payrolls, such that they could not or would not take on the mob to stop the mayhem and end the violence. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Sounds familiar to me. So the feds, they had to take the necessary steps to clean up the place and gain control of the city. And so was born the legend of Elliot Ness. And while Al Capone and his cronies were involved in so, so many murders, Al Capone was never convicted of any of them. Nope. He was sent away in prison for 11 years only after he was convicted for income tax evasion, and that was 1931. The city of Chicago then endured, you know, through the Great Depression and through all the bank failures. You know, Chicago banks suffered one of the highest failure rates in the U.S., especially in the years 1931 and 1932. There were 193 state banks open in June of 1929. By June 1933, only 35 remained. The rest had gone bankrupt, insolvent. So then Chicago endured race riots in 1943 and 1951. And believe believe it or not, this era in the city is actually characterized uh, as the peaceful interlude between recurring large-scale social disorder to follow. Hence, following the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968, riots shook the city to its roots. Then during 1968, the Democratic National Convention, all hell broke loose in Chicago. 
CBS Nightly News TV um, broadcaster Walter Cronkite characterized the violence in Chicago as nothing more than a police riot. And it was during these troubled times that Chicago Mayor Richard Daley ordered the police, whoa, shoot to maim all looters, shoot to kill all arsonists. Now, I, I, I got to tell you, I myself don't have much sympathy for arsonists. So shooting arsonists is okay by me. Still, the, or, the order by the mayor struck the nation as a bit unhinged. But, but then so was and had been the reputation that belonged to the city of Chicago. So let's simply agree that these strong words were strong words indeed. Shoot the kill. I mean, these were these were orders General, you know, General Patton or George C. Scott might have issued, but I hope only during wartime. Post-riot, the world watched in awe then, you know, the circus-like yippee trial of the Chicago 7 that was adjudicated, if, if, if that's the word for it, by the overwhelmed 72-year-old Judge Julius Hoffman. Center, center stage in this legal service were uh, uh, circus were, were Rennie Davis, Abby Hoffman, you know, William Kunstler as their legal counsel, Tom Hayden, one of Hanoi Jane Fonda's three husbands, and Jerry Rubin. <laughs> you know, as an aside, I once read that Jane Fonda had stated, I was not the kind of mother that I wish that I had been to my children. Are you kidding, Jane? I am shocked. You know, when when did it come? When did you come to the conclusion that you might have been a better mom when you were riding on top of a North Vietnamese tank while wearing a helmet during the Vietnam War? Hmm. Well, once again, I've digressed. Anyway, since all that, Chicago has still suffered and suffered the great I mean, totally idiosyncratic Chicago River flood, whereby the Chicago River broke through the decrepit underground tunnels beneath the city and beneath the river, and it, and it began filling the interconnected office building basements in the loop. Fish were soon seen swimming in the lobbies of high-rise office buildings, which had been swamped as the river flowed into the buildings from beneath them. I mean, this is a sight one does not see in a big city. You know, and as fate would have it when morons rule, a $10,000 repair estimate for repairing a small leak that was found in the tunnel beneath the river. It was deemed excessive by a unionized city bureaucrat whom decided the leaking river repair could wait. He needed that repair to undergo a thorough bidding process, taking months before the leak would be repaired. Are you kidding me? You know, a key to understanding incompetence is to understand that incompetent people never understand their own incompetency. And incompetency cannot be fixed or retained, you know, retrained away. It just can't be. And that's why such competence, incompetence must be terminated, employed only in jobs that require minimal skills where they cannot hurt people due to their incompetence. Hmm. 
When that tunnel gave way beneath the river, the Chicago River flowed directly into the interconnected sub-basement of, of the lobbies of those Chicago high-rise office complexes. By the time it all ended, the ultimate cost of this absurd bidding process maneuver cost the city more than $2 billion. That ignorant level of idiocy, incompetency, negligence appears to me to rise, as did the Chicago River, to a malfeasance level worthy of qualifying as a criminal negligence to be punished by law. And that was 1992. In the meantime, Chicago has given us, it has gone on to give us terrifying mass and serial killers, the likes of which were Richard Speck, John Wayne Gacy, and the Tylenol spiking poisoner who killed, you know, the Tylenol poisoner who killed seven people in the 1970s, seven innocents. This was Chicago in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Then, of course, in the 21st century, there have been 11 consecutive years in which the city of Chicago has led the nation in murders. There really is bad juju about this place, this city. And thus it is that we establish the basis for our next episode, which will be entitled The Trial of Brandon Johnson, the Mayor-Elect of Chicago, who has a chance, even though it might be a slight one, a chance to step forward and become a momentous figure in the city's history. We will see if he is up to the task. Nothing to date would indicate he's ready to be a great man, but we'll find out. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I am in a far-off place Half of a world away there's so much to do and there's so much to see Mother Nature's had her way There are mountains and valleys and beautiful hills Each vista something new And though my imagination's been captured My thoughts, they return to you